Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the latest in an occasional series of readings brought to you by the Times Literary Supplement. I'm Mika Ross-Southall and this is the second in our trio of tales on the darker side of the imagination. The American writer Edith Wharton was born in 1862 and died at the age of 75 in 1937. She is best known for her novels that astutely portray the foibles of the upper-class late 19th century society in which she grew up, such as The House of Mirth, that sold 100,000 copies in the first three months after its publication in 1905, and The Age of Innocence, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1921, making her the first woman to receive the award. Wharton's literary reputation remains undiminished, She has produced some of the most enduring works of American fiction, which can be funnier and more biting than the writing of her friend, Henry James. In an article in the TLS in 2009, Colm Toybean describes Wharton's compassionate, realist prose as a grim music full of beat and pace and melancholy variation. But she was also an artist and interior designer and co-authored various influential design books with the architect Ogden Codman, including The Decoration of Houses, which appeared in 1898. Instead of the fussy hodgepodge Victorian style, they called for design based on the European tradition of simple, classically proportioned architecture and furniture. Wharton also wrote a number of short ghost stories. Hermione Lee, in her biography, notes the writer's long-held obsession with supernatural fiction. So much so that in the last years of her life, Wharton would stay up on All Souls' Night and read over her list of the dead. In the preface to her collection of short stories, Ghosts, published in 1937, Wharton claimed she didn't believe in the supernatural, but was afraid of it. Perhaps a paradox, yet it tells us what makes her ghost stories so effective – with ordinary characters and familiar surroundings, rather than, for example, haunted Gothic ruins, she creates her dark horror through psychological uncertainty, strange occurrences and the power of suggestion, all mixed with a healthy dose of scepticism. What's interesting about the stories is how her characters deal with these unsettling situations. Her preface to Ghosts continues... The only suggestion I can make is that the teller of supernatural tales should be well frightened in the telling, for if he is, he may perhaps communicate to his readers the sense of that strange something 
undreamt of in the philosophy of Horatio. Here's an extract from the short story The Eyes, which appeared in her collection Tales of Ghosts and Men in 1910. The narrator has just got engaged to his playing cousin, Alice Noel, which he considers to be an act of great kindness. I went up to bed with rather a heavy heart, for I was bowed under the weight of the first good action I had ever consciously committed. And young as I was, I saw the gravity of my situation. Don't imagine from this that I had hitherto been an instrument of destruction. I had been merely a harmless young man who had followed his bent and declined all collaboration with Providence. Now I had suddenly undertaken to promote the moral order of the world, and I felt a good deal like the trustful spectator who has given his gold watch to the conjurer and doesn't know in what shape he'll get it back when the trick is over. Still, a glow of self-righteousness tempered my fears, and I said to myself as I undressed that when I'd got used to being good, it probably wouldn't make me as nervous as it did at the start. And by the time I was in bed and had blown out my candle, I felt that I really was getting used to it and that, as far as I'd got, it was not unlike sinking down into one of my aunt's very softest wool mattresses. I closed my eyes on this image, and when I opened them it must have been a good deal later, for my room had grown cold and the night was intensely still. I was waked suddenly by the feeling we all know, the feeling that there was something near me that hadn't been there when I fell asleep. I sat up and strained my eyes into the darkness, the room was pitch black, and at first I saw nothing, but gradually a vague glimmer at the foot of the bed turned into two eyes staring back at me. I couldn't see the face attached to them, on account of the darkness I imagined, but as I looked the eyes grew more and more distinct. They gave out a light of their own. The sensation of being thus gazed at was far from pleasant, and you might suppose that my first impulse would have been to jump out of bed and hurl myself on the invisible figure attached to the eyes. But it wasn't. My impulse was simply to lie still. I can't say whether this was due to an immediate sense of the uncanny nature of the apparition, to the certainty that if I did jump out of bed, I should hurl myself on nothing, or merely to the benumbing effect of the eyes themselves. They were the very worst eyes I've ever seen. A man's eyes, but what a man. My first thought was that he must be frightfully old. The orbits were sunk and the thick red-lined lids hung over the eyeballs like blinds of which the cords are broken. One lid drooped a little lower than the other with the effect of a crooked leer and between these pulpy folds of flesh, with their scant bristle of lashes, the eyes themselves, small glassy discs with an agate-like rim about the pupils, looked like sea pebbles in the grip of a starfish. But the age of the eyes was not the most unpleasant thing about them. What turned me sick was their expression of vicious security. I don't know how else to describe the fact that they seemed to belong to a man who had done a lot of harm in his life, but had always kept just inside the danger lines. They were not the eyes of a coward, but of someone much too clever to take risks, and my gorge rose at their look of base astuteness. 
Yet even that wasn't the worst, for as we continued to scan each other, I saw in them a tinge of faint derision and felt myself to be its object. At that I was seized by an impulse of rage that jerked me out of my bed and pitched me straight on the unseen figure at its foot. But of course there wasn't any figure there, and my fists struck at emptiness. Ashamed and cold, I groped about for a match and lit the candles. The room looked just as usual, as I had known it would, and I crawled back into bed and blew out the lights. As soon as the room was dark again, the eyes reappeared, and I now applied myself to explaining them on scientific principles. At first, I thought the illusion might have been caused by the glow of the last embers in the chimney, but the fireplace was on the other side of my bed, and so placed that the fire could not possibly be reflected in my toilet glass, which was the only mirror in the room. Then it occurred to me that I might have been tricked by the reflection of the embers in some polished bit of wood or metal, and though I couldn't discover any object of the sort in my line of vision, I got up again, groped my way to the hearth, and covered what was left of the fire, but as soon as I was back in bed, the eyes were back at its foot. They were an hallucination then, that was plain, but the fact that they were not due to any external dupery didn't make them a bit pleasanter to see. For if they were a projection of my inner consciousness, what the deuce was the matter with that organ? I had gone deeply enough into the mystery of morbid pathological states to picture the conditions under which an exploring mind might lay itself open to such a midnight admonition, but I couldn't fit it to my present case. I had never felt more normal, mentally and physically, and the only unusual fact in my situation, that of having assured the happiness of an amiable girl, did not seem of a kind to summon unclean spirits about my pillow but there were the eyes still looking at me. I shut mine and tried to evoke a vision of Alice Knowles. They were not remarkable eyes, but they were as wholesome as fresh water, and if she had had more imagination or longer lashes, their expression might have been interesting. As it was, they did not prove very efficacious, and in a few moments I perceived that they had mysteriously changed into the eyes at the foot of the bed, it exasperated me more to feel these glaring at me through my shut lids than to see them, and I opened my eyes again and looked straight into their hateful stare. And so it went on all night. I can't tell you what that night was, nor how long it lasted. Have you ever lain in bed, hopelessly, wide awake, and tried to keep your eyes shut, knowing that if you opened them, you'd see something you dreaded and loathed? It sounds easy, but it's devilish hard. Those eyes hung there and drew me. I had the vertige de l'abîme, and their red lids were the edge of my abyss. I had known nervous hours before, hours when I had felt the wind of danger in my neck, but never this kind of strain. It wasn't that their eyes were so awful. They hadn't the majesty of the powers of darkness, but they had, how shall I say, a physical effect that was the equivalent of a bad smell. Their look left a smear like a snail's. And I didn't see what business they had with me anyhow, and I stared and stared, trying to find out. I don't know what effect they were trying to produce, but the effect they did produce was that of making me pack my portmanteau and bolt to town early the next morning. 
Read more about horror stories in this week's TLS, which also contains Nabokov's dream notes and his letters to Vera, Jeanette Curry on Helen MacDonald's H's for Hawk, the sermons of John Donne, migrant modernism, and much, much more. To find out more about the TLS and to read a free selection of pieces from this week's issue, go to our website, the-tls.co.uk. You can read the TLS in full every week in print or via our app, which is available on iTunes and in the Amazon App Store. The TLS, life in every word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.